Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined today by Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, I see on Twitter that there's some in-person in performance events happening at BU. Um, uh, I'm curious how that's been going. We're about to, in fact, we opened our first in-person play here um, uh, last night. So how's it going at Boston? It's going really well. So we, we started off with a French festival, which means there's, I believe, three different performances, uh, three productions as part of the French festival. Uh, so it also means that I think every three days you get to, you know, re-experience the thrill of being in person, uh, you know, with other people sitting shoulder to shoulder, but wearing masks uh, and attending live theater. And it's been great. Uh, it's been an opportunity with such great frequency to get over the um anxiety or stress one might feel because it's happening again and again each new play. Uh, but it's a lot of fun to be back and people are just happy to be back in a world in which you can see live entertainment again. Yeah, that's that's really good to hear. Yeah, we had a, a, our new play festival um, earlier in the semester in, in September and it was, you know, audiences masked, everybody masked except actors who are actively on stage performing and then their masks go back on. Um, and it seemed to go really well. And, and like you said, I think people are happier. The students are, are enjoying um, something that feels a little bit closer to normal. Um, uh, we are joined also by Miriam Felton Dansky of Bard College. Miriam, I'm curious how uh, Bard is navigating this. Are theater and opera events happening close to the same mode uh, as pre-pandemic? I don't know about close to the same mode as pre-pandemic, but we are actively shifting what we were doing um, pre-pandemic, as a lot of theaters are and a lot of institutions are. So this fall, um, as in, um, in place of uh, a kind of really big full production that we might have done before, um, this also goes to some of our topics that we'll be thinking about on the podcast today, um, we're doing some workshops. Um, and for instance, um, we have uh, just a director and a really exciting sound designer, composer, musician coming in to spend three weeks working on um, Brecht's play Mahagoni um, with students and really kind of shaping that experience around the students who come to the table and what they're interested in working on. Um, and so there will not be a full design team, there will not be a full tech, but there will be a performance that's created um, in the room. And so we're experimenting with some um, student-centered and kind of um, less less labor intensive models but yes we are doing performance in person and um and although we taught in person all of last year it is um it is significantly different this year and it's really great to to just be in more spaces with with more human beings that sounds really great so today on the podcast we're going to talk about book publishing in theater and performance studies. Miriam is embarking on a project to shed some light on this somewhat mysterious and very important aspect of scholarly research. We're going to examine also some recent labor organizing activity in the theater industry with the recent um, IATSE efforts to improve working conditions in TV and film and a strike narrowly averted there. We look at the strain excessive hours continually put on theater professionals. And finally, we will talk about who is the bad art friend, the New York Times Magazine story about friendship, rivalry, and ethics in the world of fiction writing. How do these dynamics appear or not appear in fields closer to academic theater and performance studies? Before 
those topics, we will have our freeform land acknowledgement. Uh, Harvey, please take it away. Yes, uh, thank you, panel. Uh, we recognize that land holds the memory of its previous uses and abuses. We encourage all listeners to learn more about the lands on which they currently dwell and the experiences of those whose movements and dispossessions preceded your arrival. Thank you so much. So book publishing in theater and performance studies. So this is a really important aspect of what we in academic theater and performance studies do. Of course, classes, conferences, symposia, colloquia, journals, blogs, even podcasts have their part in producing and disseminating new research in our field. But book publishers are unique in that they shepherd the most sustained, ambitious scholarly research projects into existence. They are terribly important for people seeking tenure at schools where books are required. But the actual activities of the publishers, editors, reviewers, etc., can be mysterious, and I think especially mysterious to graduate students and faculty working on their first book. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to launch a bit of a new endeavor on the podcast. Miriam has been looking into this topic and has some plans to do some actual reporting for ONTAP listeners. Miriam, please tell us more, and, and how did you come to focus your attention on book publishing in theater and performance studies? Yeah, thank you, panel. Um, so I published a book a couple of years ago. And um, I have peers in my kind of um, cohort who came through graduate school and um, and got our first jobs and came up for tenure all, all kind of right around the same time. And what was really interesting to me was to realize um, two, two or three years after being in this process with a publisher that there were still so many aspects of my own experience with the publisher that I didn't fully understand um, and that many of my peers um, also found mysterious and that many of us had the same questions about what's going on inside the publisher. Um, and one of the things that that felt significant is that while um, when we're publishing, say, an article in a peer-reviewed journal, um, the editor of that journal is often somebody who is a scholar in our field, who is rotating in and out of that, that, that um, editorial position. Um, editors at university presses and um, and commercial academic presses um, are are their own field. They, they constitute their own field. And so there's something distinct about that. Um, and although there are many very um, useful panels and, and sessions, and I know that um, there are now increasingly more um, courses in graduate schools devoted to preparing for the profession and that book publishing is a part of that, what I was curious to do was um, kind of take a step back from that and rather than um, offering sort of a, a package of advice for the for the first time um, book author, um, look at just what what is this organization that we are engaging with when we engage with a publisher? How do they operate? How are they staffed? Um, how do finances work? Because those um, those deeply impact um, those of us who are publishing. Um, so how much does it cost a publisher to publish our books? So when we talk about um, open access or subventions or even um, the the terrifying model of um, you know pay to publish that that people that have been coming up, I was sort of curious to say, okay, what's what's the bigger picture here and um, so I started um, by looking for any information I could find, and um, our field is relatively small, which meant that I've I've had to start um, really, really large and think about just what is the university press overall. Started reading about the history of university presses. Um, if people don't know, the Association of University Presses um, has a lot of information on their website. 
that's pretty fascinating. Um, and I and I started reading that, and I've been emailing with their director of communications, who's been incredibly helpful, um, and just thinking about where does a university press exist in in the ecosystem of the university, in the ecosystem of academia at large. Um, and then I'm curious. I'll be speaking with some editors and other staff at publishers. I'm sort of curious about. Um, what does our field look like from the perspective of a university press? So why might a university press engage in a line, um, a series, a, a title list in theater and performance studies? Why might they not? Um, what? How does that coexist with other kinds of fields? Um, and then also, what is the experience of the author um, as they move through this publishing process and, and particularly with an attention to um, editorial questions, so the manuscript editing questions? Um, so to, to start doing this, um, I did a little bit of background reading. I can share a little bit about that. And then I, um, what I'm really curious, um, Harvey and panel, is to know what your questions might be. Um, there are two books that came out this year, 2021, that I took a look at. One of them, you can just see the interlibrary loan uh, big gi giant thing that tells me when I have to bring this interlibrary loan back. Um, it's called Writing an Unrecognized Academic Labor, The Rejected Manuscript by James M. Salvo. This is published by Routledge. Um, and it is part of a new series called Developing Traditions and in Qualitative Inquiry. Um, and Salvo essentially is writing a manifesto um, about how we should change the system of publishing um, and, in fact, um, gatekeeping in academia in general. It's not specific to monographs, um, but essentially he is suggesting that what we have is a kind of um, faux meritocratic system that actually um, is not at all meritocratic. This, this won't come as a surprise to um, probably anyone. Um, but he writes a kind of manifesto about um, how perhaps, this is his proposition kind of at the core, perhaps some of the most valuable ideas um, are the ones that we never see because they don't ever make it past a gatekeeper, whether that be a book publisher or journal editor. Um, and so he proposes this um, this somewhat um, abstract um, idea about how one might re completely rearrange the system of, um, of uh, publishing and um, recognition for academic labor by um, creating a system of peer review that he thinks about as kind of bottom up rather than top down. So in other words, maybe you, instead of approaching an editor with your, um, with your essay or your book, you post it on a totally open access site. And then if it gets X number of, of thumbs ups from your peers, then an editor might, might uh, show interest in actually publishing it. There are a lot of questions um, that are unresolved in this manuscript. Um, and, and what was interesting to me actually is that when I picked this up alongside this other book, which also came out this year, which is called The Book Proposal Book, A Guide for Scholarly Authors. Um, I expected to be really excited by Salvo's radicalism um, and less excited by um, Laura Portwood Stacer's um, really kind of step-by-step -step guide to how to write a book proposal. And in, in the end, I felt the opposite way. Um, not because I, I don't think that radical change is needed, but because um, in his... In his uh, in his quest for something completely radically new, um, Salvo ends up in a way reinforcing a kind of clickishness in the sense that he cites. He cites without explanation um, very familiar philosophical figures like Derrida and Lacan. He doesn't really explain why. Um, he doesn't 
really cite any women, um, although he brings up feminism a few times. Um, he doesn't really cite any authors of color, although he brings up the role that racism plays in, in academia a few times. Um, and so it, it ends up um, it ends up feeling like a little bit unsubstantiated. Um, and what I really appreciated about this book, and, and by the way, although this isn't an advice segment, um, if if one is looking to write an academic book proposal, I highly I'm holding this up to the Zoom as if our, our <laughs> listeners are going to see it. They're not. OK, we'll, we'll um, put it on I the can, website. We can put a link. Um, this is this is a really helpful step by step guide um, to how one might actually go about writing a really excellent um, book proposal. And um, what I appreciate about what Portwood Stacer does is that she says very clearly in the in the introduction, um, I acknowledge, I'm paraphrasing here, but she says, I acknowledge that this is not a guide to a new and better system. This is a guide to working within the system that exists. However, probably by learning to navigate and becoming familiar with the system that exists, um, you will be in a better position to improve that system or reform it or create a new one. And I really appreciated that um, from someone who is saying, here's here's what an editor is looking for. Um, and I, I appreciated the way that she kind of tries to lift pressure off of the author in that way um, and not feel like um, there's this kind of, you're forced into this um, real kind of um, difficult situation that um, I think is, is now really common in which um, more and more, a book is a requirement for tenure at a university, and that results in more and more people needing to publish monographs. Um, I'm very much generalizing here. Um, and that results in more monographs needing to be published, and that results in um, someone having to handle those costs. Um, and who who will handle those costs when um, monographs don't necessarily make up for their own costs in sales? Mm -hmm. um, and the the last thing, um, or maybe the second to last thing that I that I wanted to bring up that I looked at, we keep holding things up because I'm speaking <laughs> at both of you. Um, this really fascinating report that was done in 2016. So I acknowledge it's a little old, but it's called The Cost of Publishing Monographs Towards a Transparent Methodology. And um, this is basically an effort to break down exactly how much does a monograph cost to publish? Um, because in terms of um, staff time, press overhead, marketing costs, how much does it cost to send your marketing person to a conference? How much does it cost to send acquisitions editors to conferences? But also how much time does it cost for those staff members who work on you know, marketing or coordinating and are, you know, need to be in offices with salaries, with benefits and all of that. Um, and so there were a couple of things um, that I noticed that were interesting. And I've sent some follow up questions um, to the research team, and I'm waiting to hear back from them about those follow up questions. But um, one of the things that I noticed that was interesting was um, the number 20,000 can be thrown around a lot as a kind of general figure for how much a monograph costs to publish. Um, what this report found was that um, the the range is actually between about 15,000 and 129,000. Um, so, uh, so it's much wider than we give it credit for. Most books are more expensive than we give it credit for in terms of staff time. Um, and theater and performance studies appeared um, in only one place in this study, which makes sense because it was a, it was about general scholarly um, monograph publishing. But the only place that we showed up was um, this this study took 20 presses, several of whom are very active in our fields, for instance, Michigan, um, Northwestern, um, and 382 titles across those 20 presses. And um, and out of those, they they looked at like, what are the what are the 5% most expensive titles to publish? 
question, what are the 5% least expensive? Um, and we showed up twice in the least expensive category. We did not show up at all in the most expensive category. So um, so I learned something there and I'm following up on a, a little bit more to, to get a little bit more context around that. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that was was interesting to me um, was how little the the manuscript itself figured in the costs that were accounted for here. So in other words, a lot of the costs had to do with acquisitions. A lot of the costs had to do with marketing. Um, this study was not it did not include the cost of actually printing a book. Um, so because it was geared towards um, a kind of question about open access. Um, so what about the cost of editing the manuscript? Um, and in what ways do, do manuscripts actually get edited? And um, how much do we know about what that editing and shaping looks like before we embark on this process with a press? Um, the other piece of research that I did has to do with the history of academic presses, um, where, where the academic press comes from. But I think I want to save that um, either for later or for another segment and just, um, just turn it over to both of you and see um, what kind of questions do you have about um, monograph publishing? Yeah, I'll, I'll hop in here. Uh, this is this is interesting. I'm, I've I've worked with a number of presses, and I've spent time like hanging out physically in the building <laughs> of, of the presses, uh, and and it's always eye opening in terms of of it's almost like pulling back the uh, the curtain. Uh, to 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 see uh, what's going on and and how things are made and what the conversations are. So I and and I what my experience is is it's it's purely anecdotal uh, with um, with with a, a small number of presses. But I'm I'm interested to see what this yields. I think that one of my questions for this ongoing series of interviews, uh, you know, probably relates to um, what is the margin, you know. Um, you know, between that cost of producing the book uh, and uh, generating a profit for the press, um, because it's like I think that many of us have experiences with um, copy editors, for example, who, you know, who are the primary interfaces for the author, in which the copy editor is often a freelance uh, copy editor uh, who's not part of the core uh, payroll in terms of full-time employment for a press. So I'm just kind of curious to get a sense of how much of the overall press operations are then factored into the individual cost of a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. It relates to one of the things that I feel like I observed early on in my process of getting a book published, which is that there's this odd triangular relationship regarding the professors who do the majority of the intellectual labor, you know, writing the books, but also editing and offering review, um, the presses and the universities that employ the professors, but also the universities are sometimes, uh, you know, supporting the press. Whereas you imagine in fiction publishing or nonfiction publishing for trade presses, there's an author who's who's going to do a ton of work and the press is going to publish the book and get a portion of the profits, but they need to pay the author. In academic publishing, yes, we get, you know, royalties that I, I imagine if you're an author on a big you know, smash hit book that goes through multiple re-editions or a textbook like that can actually be lucrative for most of us. You get a minuscule cut, uh, you know, a small cut of a minuscule, you know, royalty uh, uh, payment. So it's not about the money. So we're doing all this work for the book that goes to the press. The press is making some profits, though that's one of the questions I have <laughs> is I don't expect that university presses are making a ton of money and paying shareholders. The big 
multinational for-profit presses, they are making profits. Um, but, you know, the press is going to uh, put some costs, uh, you know, pay for the production of the book. They're going to get some of the profits back. Um the professors are not getting paid a lot, but we're getting paid by the university. And the university is, on the one hand, um, benefiting from the press because the press is doing a lot of the work of producing the research, which is what universities are supposed to do, um, and doing the sort of, you know, I don't know, gatekeeping slash upkeeping of standards and quality control. Um, the universities, though, are also helping the presses by buying the books in their libraries. So it's it's a quite, you know, somewhat confusing, I think, uh, system of payment and, and labor production. And it seems really, really quirky. And so I'm curious to know more, more about that. I'm also curious to know how editors see the relationship with the readers or the reviewers that they hire to evaluate a manuscript. Um, my book came out from Cambridge. My editor was Vicki Cooper. She's since left Cambridge and, and is on to other things. Um, and I don't mean to in any way, you know, cast anything but positive light on, on the process that I went through. But it occurred to me that she was relying heavily on the reader's reports that she got. I didn't get direct editorial input from her. She didn't say, here's what I like about your manuscript. This is what I think you might consider in a revision. It was, here's what the readers said, and 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 uh, what do you think about that? So it occurs to me that the editor in a position like that is looking at the readers as you know, making sure that the standards are kept up, that the book doesn't have embarrassing errors, that it's of sufficient quality to be produced under by that press. Um, but also editorial input needs to come from those reviewers as well. And I'm just curious to know more about how editors think of selecting reviewers. Yeah, those are, those are great questions. I just wanted to um, add that in terms of thinking about this ecosystem of the library, the university, the author, um, one of the things that I have observed just doing some preliminary reading is that libraries are um, are not bundling purchases in the way that they used to. So in other words, whereas an academic publisher um, maybe a few decades ago could count on university libraries buying full lists or full series, um, uh, libraries are not necessarily doing that anymore, which is different from how journals are, are purchased because a library really, in a sense, cannot afford to not be up to date with, J say, JSTOR. Um, and so presses that are um, making money are often making money off of either a line of textbooks um, or journals. Um, for instance, like Cambridge has a huge package of journals. Um, and uh, and so that is part of the ecosystem of, um, of, of publishers funding monographs through their other lines of profit, such as journals, such as text textbooks. Um, panel Cambridge, uh, when I was looking up some of the history of, of um, book, book publishers in our field, Cambridge um, was unsurprisingly the oldest um, of the publishers. And I was trying to see whether some of our publishers are um, from the like 1970s boom of, of scholarly publishing. Um, and, and no, most of us publish with much older presses than that. Cambridge is the oldest. Um, it was founded, according to their website, in 1534. And um, I just have a little podcast joke. 
It was founded in 1534. And on their website, they say proudly that their um, their first book came out in 1584. And I was texting with my good friend and colleague, Jacob Gallagher-Ross of the University of Toronto, uh, like, what were they doing for 50 years? And he was like, well, waiting for the peer reviews to come in. Um, so, yeah. so um, but, but that on was that worth note, the punchline, uh, the wait for that one. I like that one. <laughs> on that note, um, you know, I do think that one thing to really think about is that Peer reviewers in in many cases, panel, I think what you're what you're describing is is pretty common across lots of presses. Peer reviewers are actually in a way playing the role of developmental editors, meaning the, the, the people who address the full scope of the manuscript. And so what do we think about that? How is that working? How is it working for reviewers, for authors, for presses? That's that's an interesting question to explore. That's fascinating. Uh, Miriam, thank you so much for this overview of your research. And um, listeners, we're looking forward to maybe uh, releasing some special podcast episodes that will allow for a little bit of a deeper dive into some of this information. Um, but uh, Miriam, I can't wait to, to hear more about what you're learning and, and especially your interviews with um, editors and, and other staff at these important presses. Um, we wanted to talk also today about labor conditions in theater and in entertainment. Um, many of us, I think, were aware of the the possibility of a work stoppage and a strike by the um, IATSE, um union that was narrowly averted um, last week, I believe, or, or earlier this week. Um, but we're also interested in looking at the signs that theater artists in general and technicians uh, in particular in theater are rejecting the heroic attitude that the show must go on amidst unlivable working conditions. So theater artists who have long been organizing towards better compensation are also focused on excessive hours especially that are that are um, uh, expected in, in much of the industry. So on the one hand, I think we could see this development as part of a much broader shift in attitudes toward work um, as the pandemic disrupted work patterns in many, many industries and state-subsidized state income was paid to try to alleviate those pressures, many people, especially in the service industries now, are deciding not to return to their old jobs, citing inadequate pay, overlong hours, strenuous conditions. Um, but working conditions have been on the minds of theater artists for a long time. Previous to the pandemic, um, uh, I recall seeing organizing by actors. I'm thinking especially of the 2016 campaign Fair Wage on Stage, um, which looked especially at the utterly inadequate compensation for actors in off-Broadway productions. And, and if you look into statistics that are available, even for Broadway actors, right? So the actors who are working in the most high-profile, most you know lucrative shows, it's surprising how little um, the most successful theater actors can expect to be paid. Um, this year, the organization No More 10 Out of 12s, which includes actors, technical staff, designers, all sorts of theater workers, is drawing attention not as much to compensation, but to the assumption that people can work six-day weeks um, and that they can work 10 out of 12s, right? And 10 out of 12s is the, um, you know, the, the, the term for the union regulated um, uh, standard by which in a rehearsal people, especially actors, but actually I think workers of all categories 
can be expected to be called for a 12-hour rehearsal of which they will work 10 hours, um, especially in tech. So there's been really excellent reporting on this issue by Ashley Lee in the Los Angeles Times, who's been writing on the working culture at Williamstown Theater Festival. So it's not just about New York. It's not just about Broadway. Um, So I'm interested to know what, uh, Harvey, Miriam, you think about this. And I guess the questions I have are sort of two. Um, The first one really has to do with this as a industry issue and uh, a sort of labor issue in general, given the economic pressures that are on theater that are frequently cited by producers uh, and the additional hardships for the theater industry caused by the pandemic, do we think that this movement can gain significant wins for workers in this industry? I have seen that there are some theaters that are already responding. Um, Mayi Theater, for example, is uh, getting rid of the the six-day work week. Um, But what do we really think about the prospects for this making a substantive change in the way theater uh, workers are expected to work? And I'll start with that one, and then maybe we have time for another question later. What do you think? Um, I'll hop in. Uh, I think it has to. I mean, I don't think there's a choice. Like, I mean, first of all, just to just back up, I think um, it's exciting that this movement is um, gaining a lot of traction right now. I think a lot of credit has to go to the We See You White American Theater um, movement um, and racial justice movement more broadly. Um, and, you know, there's a website, no more 10 out of 12s.com that lists the the, the theaters um, across the country that have committed to no more 10 out of 12s. And they're a lot of fairly significant, recognizable um, theaters that that um, you immediately see Playwrights Horizons, the Playwrights Realm, the Public Theater. I'm looking at the, the P's through the R's right now. San Francisco Shakespeare Festival, Seattle Rep, Second Stage, Shakespeare Theater Company um, in Washington, D.C., Signature Theater, Soho Rep. So um, there's there are a lot of theaters that have committed to this, and several of them link to um, either uh, a larger statement that includes no more 10 out of 12s in a, in a kind of bigger um, statement of values and, um, and principles, or and or um, an actual schedule, a, a, an alternate tech schedule. How can you accomplish the same work in um, in a less abusive and destructive um, work environment? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it absolutely has to. And um, the arts are already so um, un, unfunded and um, and poor in this country that. Um, that there's 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 really no nothing to be gained by um, by by conservatism or digging in one's heels and um, and and going for the bottom line and um, something that really um, inspired me um, two things something one thing that inspired me is um, Soho Rep which is on this list of theaters that have committed to no more ten out of twelves um, during the pandemic people are probably familiar um, to some extent with this but. Um, they addressed the pandemic with what they called project number one, which was to hire eight um, individual artists who would have been working from one gig to the next um, onto their staff and pay them salaries and benefits. Um, And this this just should be standard. Um, when I spoke with Cynthia Flowers, who's one of their three co-artists, co, uh, excuse me, co-directors um, over the summer, she said, well, we we did this kind of radical thing and we really hoped that then every other theater would see this and start doing it as well. And, um, and, and I was like, I hope that they still will. Um, and they're continuing that. They have two new artists um, on staff this fall. And this, this just should be the case. Artists should be paid staff members. And I think that if that were the case in a more widespread way, there wouldn't be 
the work culture of people who are working from one gig to the next and therefore can be pressured into these um, these kind of unsustainable situations. Um, the, the website that is the kind of resource hub for this movement also has a series of recorded panels that people can watch that are um, no more 10 out of 12s on Broadway, no more 10 out of 12s in small theaters. I watched the one that related to the Academy um, because that's that's our situation. And, um, you know, what a, a couple things came up, um, specific tips for supporting students students um, during rehearsal. One of the um, speakers on that panel talks about what she calls the abundant rehearsal room, meaning um, two things, meaning a rehearsal room that has uh, some of the technical needs already built into it so that tech doesn't come as um, such a huge lift and such a shock, um, but also the rehearsal room that has um, space or adjacent spaces for rest, for homework, for other things that students will need to do um, while they are moving in and out of a rehearsal. Um, so that was striking. And the other thing um, that was striking to me was the conversation about um, letting go of this idea that we need to pr prepare students for um, for the the real world outside of academia, but actually that academia is um, enmeshed within the real world, and that um, that the more we in a in a really robust way model what we think that larger ecosystem should look like, the better prepared our students may be to to go out and try to um, implement that change when they graduate. So a couple thoughts. Yeah, I, I totally agree in terms of the perspective on college campuses and universities. There's no reason to have a 10 out of 12 uh, in college. I think that sometimes what happens is we, as a culture, romanticize this idea of suffering. Uh, the, um, you know, oh my goodness, as part of the show before opening, we were, we were here like all day, all night. I didn't sleep at all. I'm a walking zombie. And isn't it great? <laughs> you know, and I and I think that that is something that we need to critique, certainly at the level of universities, because there's there, there, there's not the same economic investments or risks uh, involved in those productions. I will say that oh, there's a motorcycle going by me right now <laughs> in the background. Uh, but I do wonder how much of this is being dictated by uh, by the economics of Broadway, you know, and just you know, each day, you're, each day that you're in the building, there's a cost attached to it. And what is the ripple effect of, of extending that timeline? You know, so, so I'd be curious to know, is it Broadway that's driving the conversation with regional theaters kind of caught in the middle and then universities and colleges just being like, hey, that's the cool thing to do? Uh, or is there another way of sort of flipping the scenario to get out of this trap? It's Yeah, that, I had a question along a similar line, which is that to the extent that to what extent is this really about economics to what extent is it really about attitudes um people feeling like well i've always done tech this way tech's a nightmare you don't get any sleep but it's lots of fun and you bond and you you know this sort of idea of romanticizing it and that's just the way that the show has to be done these alternate models of managing tech i assume it means spreading a tech rehearsal especially on a complicated show over multiple days so you're limiting the amount of rehearsal that happens um it occurs to me that there has to be some sort of trade-off right you're going to lose you're going to have to extend your rehearsal process or you're going to have to compress it and there's going to be less time for other types of work. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's on the No More 10 Out of 12's website that's really compelling is studies that show that there's not an increased yield of productivity. If, if you have people working a 40-hour week versus an 80-hour week, you're kind of getting the same amount of 
work and output from them because after 40 hours a week, people are not functioning well. So it's super compelling. And I'm really glad to to know that there are a lot of theaters who have signed on to this. But, you know, what is it to the extent, is it really economics? Is it um, really just attitudes? I'm not certain about that. And and the, the issue of how it plays out in academia is interesting because students, they're not you know, professional workers, they're doing it as an extracurricular or they're earning credit. Um, it, it seems like on the one hand, the the idea that this is the way it's done in the professional world. And so you're going to learn that rhythm um, is a is a justification you can't really apply because the students are not uh, working full time. They're full time students and, and they have less time available. Um Again, this is not a brand new issue, but in the time that I've been here at WashU, we basically settled on a 15-hour maximum call per week for student uh, students in rehearsals. And I'm curious to know if that's a norm that exists elsewhere or if that's just what we came to because students were saying we can't do four – we can't do five four-hour rehearsals calls a week. It's it's devastating to our academic uh, uh, calendars, to our social lives. Um, so I'm interested in the ways that it – it shakes out differently or if it shakes out differently in academia, what do you think? I, I, I mean, I think we still just run into the, how should I put it? I'll put it this way for student led rehearsals. I think those tend not to have limits. So, you know, when you have a student group creating their own work, it's the, it's the mythology of the, of exhaustion, you know, that, that often drives that structure. I think that there's more rails attached to uh, university productions, uh, mainly because you have to, you, you, there's a point where the doors have to be locked, <laughs> you know, like, um, and uh, there's a point where a building has to be occupied, you know, for, you know, for an event or whatever else. Uh, but I've, I've seen that within sort of student self-produced uh, productions in which um, there was a real sense of liberty around uh, the parameters for the time in which they set aside for these rehearsals and productions. I do wonder just to, to go in a slightly different direction, and this is playing devil's advocate, so I'm not fully endorsing this, uh, but looking professionally, uh, and the backdrop for this is me being a fan of watching like The Deadliest Catch and, and, and those sort of, those, those TV shows where they're out catching like, you know, salmon and crab and stuff like that, and they're off at sea for, for days and weeks at, a, at an end, and they come back and they're, and they're off for, for, you know, in the off season. Is there a way in which for professional theater, there's a thought that you work uh, highly intensely uh, you know, for the period that you're in Broadway, realizing that that time is finite, and then um, there's a gap between gigs? You know, so that does one work the 10 out of 12, the six-day work week, uh, in a sort of seasonal way, because that's the nature of the job. Um, that's interesting. I don't know about this TV show where they catch fish. Can you send me some info about that, Harvey? Oh, it's great. Absolutely. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> the deadliest um, catch. The deadliest, like, okay. But um, but anyway, because my four-year-old was asking me about, like, different ocean animals and which ones eat which other ones yesterday, and I didn't have the answer. So anyway, um, I, I guess... I think there is an argument to be made for that, certainly in terms of the work that that might be produced. Um, there still seems to be the the underlying systemic argument about 
Is that something, for instance, that someone who has any caregiving responsibility can do? Um, or um, can the the gigs that are that intensive pay enough to sustain someone and provide health insurance for them, right? Are they meeting their, their actor's equity number of weeks per year or whatever it might be? Um, so, so I think those questions um, are still there. And then I think um, the, the bigger question that um, is just more, you know, more um, idealistic is what are we making and why are we making it? And, and could that um, at least under the conditions of um, the university where we, where we can say, we're not, we're not going to do, you know, this fall, I said, I'm not going to do a full production because I want to rethink what we're making and why we're making it. Um, can we let that drive the structure of the rehearsal process more um, than, uh, than kind of, fitting something into a system that we already know doesn't work for so many people. Yeah, I think my guess, Harvey, would be that people in the industry totally and in the movement acknowledge and know that they're going to work harder closer to opening the show and they're going to work harder when they're in process and when they're in, you know, a, a rehearsal production process than than when they're not, but that there are just limits that have to be established on how much work within a week can happen, how much work within a day can happen. The academic situation is interesting because I feel like you have cross pressures. On the one hand, um, you don't need to have professional conditions in um, academic theater. I, this is something that I am a little bit cranky about, where I feel like the ideal of of theater production and artistic creation in a university really ought not to be the professional standard, that people should not be working as hard. There perhaps should not be the same kind of gloss and polish on the finished product. It should be more exploratory, more experimental. Um, uh, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, you've got very young people. Young people tend to have fewer obligations. They tend not to have as much of a, you know, uh, time that they need to spend with family. As you say, Harvey, when students are given autonomy to run their own process, they're rehearsing till 11 at night, two in the morning, and that's what they want to do. Um, and so in a way there's sort of possible, you know, attention there. But I, I do feel like there's a consensus that students should not be expected to, to work a 10 out of 12 <laughs> on an academic show. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating issue. Um, we wanted to talk on the podcast today also about something that I suppose has less direct applicability to theater performance studies, but we couldn't resist. Um, that is the the story, uh, uh, the Who is the Bad Art Friend, uh, which was published by the New York Times Magazine October 5th, and then has since uh, uh, attracted a lot of, of chatter and attention um, uh, online and elsewhere. Um, I will just, for listeners who haven't read the article, uh, give a brief, brief sense of what it is about. It's a narrative about, principally about two um, authors, um, Don Dorland um, uh, and uh, Sonia Larson, who were friends, acquaintances in the sort of fiction writing world. Um, uh, Don Dorland decided to donate uh, her kidney uh, in a very um, uh, generous and, and sort of striking way to an unknown donor, um, just hoping to, you know, um, uh, enhance somebody's life, save somebody's life in that way. Um, she let this experience be known in a sort of small circle of, of people, including Sonia Larson, who were friends and in this sort of um, literary group. 
Um, and then came to realize later that Larson had written a short story which became very popular um, that included a character who had done precisely what uh, what Dorland had done. Um, but Larson did not give Dorland a sense as this was happening that it was happening. Dorland found out later. She then found out that, um, you know, the character in this story is presented in not quite a flattering light. Um there was litigation uh, uh, because Dorland claims that Larson, you know, took uh, posts that she had put um, on Facebook, text that she had written in her own account and very lightly revised it and put it into her own story. And so it ends up with just a highly acrimonious story about envy, narcissism, uh, intellectual property, um, and just some of the more unseemly aspects of a creative and intellectual life. Um, Harvey, tell us what you think about The Bad Art Friend, and um, are there shades of this type of dynamic in our own working and personal lives? Yes. So I, I will, I will own this. I recommended this, 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 this non-theater piece that I've been thinking about for a while now. I would, I would call it a page turner, but the reality is I didn't read it in the print edition. I, I read it online. So it was a, it was a Scro screen yes. scroller it and <laughs> it just, it just keeps you scrolling. And if you choose to listen to the audio version of it, it's like an hour. It's, it's, it's layered in terms of trying to figure out who is at fault or rather you know, with whom, you know, do you want to uh, have some level, some level of empathy, right? Is it, is it the person who uh, donated her kidney, uh, shared the story of the donation and then found that a character based upon that sharing, but also the sharing of the kidney, but also the sharing of the narrative of, of the donation appears in someone else's book? Or is it the author who is critical of the way in which the uh, kidney donor, um, you know, proceeded to try to elicit empathy and some level of of crowd support, you know, for her own sense of self gratification, perhaps I don't know, uh, who then finds herself the target of a lawsuit by the kidney donor, who objects to uh, the representation of that character based upon the donor. So it's, it's kind of a fascinating, layered um, uh, prospect here, and I encourage you to check it out. But I think that when you apply it to uh, the world of academia, uh, in a way, I think of examples of, you know, sort of, you know, who is the bad, you know, author in terms of crediting sources or, you know, who is the bad uh, grad school mentor <laughs> you know, or, or, or things along those lines. Right. You know, so so my question I want to open up, uh, you know, this conversation with is. Um, you know, in, in your experience or perhaps things you might have noticed in the world, you know, what are the tensions around, you know, sort of the identification, the apportioning of credit within scholarship uh, that might align with the drama, the intrigue of this of this story? Well, I'll, I'll respond um quickly. I'll promise to respond quickly and then hopefully not go on too long. But, you know, one of the themes of this, I think, is just, you know, it's narcissism and, and in a way pettiness. Um, not that I'm saying either of the principal figures in the story were terribly petty, but there, it's, a, it's an exploration of people's feelings of um, being properly appreciated or not being properly appreciated. And I think the the analog that I'm most familiar with in our field is, is citation and credit. So um, I'm reminded of uh, a tweet 
that Patrick McKelvey put up recently. Patrick McKelvey, who, by the way, is just probably probably my favorite academic on Twitter. In general, I think professors should be off Twitter. It usually doesn't go well. <laughs> but Patrick, you should keep tweeting. But he, I, I will not even attempt to paraphrase this, but one of his tweets had to do with, you know, passively, aggressively declining to cite someone you could or should otherwise cite in an article because you're mad at them for not properly acknowledging you in another setting. And I wish I could say that that was not a familiar <laughs> feeling, um, but that, you know, there is this kind of, uh, uh, I don't even want to call it a marketplace, but say a sort of a social field in which you contribute to an area and and you want to read the people and cite the people who are important in that area. And um, this can share dynamics with a kind of friend group um, situation where you want to cite certain people because you like them, um, uh, and maybe you don't want to cite other people for reasons that are perhaps not that uh, legitimate. So I think that's one area. But one of the things this doesn't share, uh, one of the things our field doesn't tend to share, though, um, though it does now that I think of it, is the more, the sort of personal narrative. Some people's research is personal and, and autoethnographic. And so I think you could end up in situations where people felt like they were they appeared in an autoethnography in a way that perhaps wasn't flattering. Um, but to me, I imagine that this was more relevant to uh, the theater world, right? When, when, you know, if you know an author, if you know a writer, you know a playwright, and they work in personal ways, and they, they look at their own social life and write about it, um, could you be surprised to find a character on stage that sort of speaks like you or has a resemblance to you and is not flattering? I'm sure that that happens a lot. It has not happened to me, but... I don't know. What do you think, Miriam? Um, as I as I mentioned to both of you, I have neither a hot nor a cold take on this um, on this on this sensationalistic story. But um, meaning the original article, um, it is it is I agree um, a fascinating read. Um, you know, I think we all know examples of both scholars who were. Um, as either as graduate students or as junior scholars, um, in some way preyed upon by senior scholars or mentors um, who took their ideas, or in some in some cases that I don't want to name on this podcast, actually <laughs> their text. Um, and and at the same time, I certainly um, can say again, without wanting to um, kind of shout out a bunch of um, unsubstantiated information um, at this juncture, that um, that there are examples of. Um, of artists that I can think of who have taken the life experiences of people that they knew without asking and shaped them in ways that served um, whatever artistic piece that they were making. Um, and so, you know, I think that in academic, um, in the academic world, there's a, there's a simultaneous pressure um, that comes out of um, the need for originality um, and also the need to scrupulously cite um, everybody else who has um, who has spoken um, on a particular topic, and that is something that really um, seems to um, coalesce around the dissertation. Uh, one of the just going back to this um, how to write your book proposal book that I read. One of the interesting things that she says is um, that neither of those are so important for books. Um, neither being the first person to write on a topic, nor scrupulously citing absolutely everybody who's ever said anything on your topic, um, is is actually the central thing that will get your book published. But for dissertations, those are things that we are taught. Um, and so uh, so there's there's that. Um, and then, uh, you know, 
in um in in the artistic world um i guess the thing that comes up for me when i'm reading about this um and i'm seeing you know i spent i stayed up really late last night looking at twitter um about this topic about the the story originally of um of don dorland and sonia larson and um and how uh, as i understand it um, the Twitter world initially was very supportive towards Sonia, um, and and that partially was um, because her um, her story coming out of her experience um, as a Chinese American author um, was also reflective of what what she understood to be a kind of um, white savior. Um, uh, codification of the Don character. Um, and that like, here I've given this kidney, so I am therefore saving you and, and you have to therefore shape yourself into some um, reflection of that. Um, and, and then that after more, um, more of the actual legal procedure had unfolded and there is more evidence of um, quite how specifically Larson had taken and lifted text from um, Dorland's um, own writing, um, her, her personal writing, not meaning fiction writing, but meaning um, what she'd shared with a closed Facebook group, um, the, the, the Twitterverse had shifted um, to say, wait a minute, Dawn is actually this person who um, donated a, a kidney to a stranger. And it, it makes me think um, about something that I was reading um, in Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, um, which is about, she, the subtitle is about resisting the attention economy um, and how much attention has been given to this um, this kind of bilateral relationship between these two women. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that O'Dell writes about is how um, when we have um, so much distraction in our lives, one of the things that suffers is um, any sort of collective organizing. And so um, what this made me think about is um, the patriarchy um, and also um, who who the, who profits um, from this story. Um, and in a way, it doesn't seem like either um, Dorland or Larson profit. It seems as if what this story is doing is, um, first of all, um, vilifying two women um, and, and second of all, um, reinforcing a scarcity model in the arts, which um, whether we're in the fiction world or in academia or in theater, we can all um, be familiar with, which is just um, that there's not enough recognition to go around and there's not enough money to go around and there's not enough opportunities to be published to go around. And so that, it seems to me, is the larger thing um, that needs to be thought about and um, how 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 might we think about this um, in terms of um, a bigger picture than just like, is Don the bad friend or is Sonia the bad friend? Um, and, and so, you know, those are some of the things that came up for me thinking about this. Yeah. And, and I think along those lines, I think the the lens of scarcity is, is helpful because within the uh, Kolker article, he talks about the stakes being fairly low, uh, but yet there's been years of litigation. So mm -hmm. the, the, sh the amount of money that both parties have invested in lawyers' fees uh, is so much greater than the modest amount of of money that they've received from their publications or whatever speaker fees they might be attached to it. You know, and I do think that there's a way in which to to bring in the, the field of the academy. Uh, there, there, you know, there can be significant tension around citation, around credit, uh, you know, for you know what is relatively a low stakes, right? Um, and I and I think that that is something where one's sense of self and one's identity within 
within one's project and because of maybe that scarcity model of, of the limited stakes, uh, you know, sort of really drives the tension. Uh, and, and, and you see that all the time. If you're, if you're at a, if you're at a, um, uh, you're at a conference, yeah, they're coming back. You're at a conference and someone's giving you a talk and someone's, and your friend whispers, that person just stole someone's idea, <laughs> right? And then there's, and then it leads to a series of chats and conversations and texting and, and the drama and the intrigue uh, because of this model of scarcity, you know, that one has to fight for uh, and one must own this idea to get out in the world, to be one of a few books that are published, right? Um, and I think that that drives things. Uh, and, I, and, and that's where the parallel exists for me. Yeah. I'll say, too, that it, it reminds me of a factor in our second topic, which is that it's a different kind of way of thinking about scarcity. But why are people willing in theater, entertainment, television, journalism, willing to work 20 hours in a day? And it's I think there's there's a heroic attitude about the work, but there's also a sense that it's an extremely competitive field. And if you're not willing to work this hard there, you'll lose your job to someone else who will. Um, and in a way, maybe this is something that that can I don't know, link, link the two topics. Um, I, I want to move us on to drafts, but I want to just tag this with one more thing that um, uh, this reminded me, the, the, the idea of citation, the notion of the, um, the article that needs to cite the authorities in the field. I think this is fine. Um, but I was um, attending an event about a, a collaborative project uh, that's about to come out or in process, uh, Marxist Keywords for Performance, that Shane Boyle and uh, several of his um, fellow members of the um, Performance and Political Economy Reading Group are working on. And I think it's going to be published in the JDTC and Arrow Lane is, is editing it. But they made the choice not to cite. And part of the reason I think, I, I you know, members of the who worked on it should uh, should will actually know more. But the sense I got was that there's an actual critique of the way that um, Marxist ideas and ideas about political economy are talked about or not talked about with specificity in our field. And they, my guess would be, they did not want to get mired in who are we going to name and who are we not going to name. But instead, they just said, we're not going to cite anybody. We're just going to say, words tend to be used in these ways. Um, we're going to know what we're talking about. We're going to tell the truth, but we're not going to make it about whom we're calling out, you know? And so that's, in a way, that's a sort of avoidance of the citational convention in a particular setting, which to me makes a lot of sense. Um, so, uh, anyways, I, I thought I'd throw that in there. Um, listeners, we're going to wrap up the episode by moving on to our drafts. Um, longtime listeners of the podcast will know that our drafts are um, our musings, our thoughts, uh, 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 things we're working on, things we've experienced out in the world that um, have some relevance to uh, theater and performance studies. Um, Harvey, would you, would you lead us off with your draft? Uh, it's 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 Halloween season, and and so I've been thinking about Halloween, and I have yeah I, I have two young kids, uh, but also it's 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 the season of costumes and dressing up and impersonation, and you know which always you know leads to within a university the emails that remind you like do not dress up in a stereotypical manner right you know you know blackface is not good it's not a good look for for anyone it's a, so don't do it, uh, but along those lines more seriously I'm I'm thinking about you know. Where is that line? I mean, so sometimes we artificially create the sense of a stark division. Obviously, you don't, um, you know, dress like a stereotypical character. You don't put on blackface, you know. But at what point, and how do we educate people about uh, when they've crossed the line when it's less explicit than that, right? So, you know, how do we think about, um, you know, sort of 
across you know, sort of without putting on makeup, cross racial, cross gender performances to um, be and play a person. Right. So, you know, at what point can a um, a straight white man, you know, you know, costume or, or, or be uh, Serena Williams? Right. Um, or is that totally not allowed in any, cir- in any circumstances because of any effort, even through dress, you know, invites concerns around stereotype and parody? Right. And, 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 and that's what I'm interested in. It's like, at what point is something, some role, some character, some person just not available uh, to an individual? Uh, because the act of, 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 of costume, the act of play, even that first step, already crosses a line. So that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Thank you, Harvey. I, fortunately I did not have Serena Williams on my Halloween costume shortlist. So I'm, I think I'm going to avoid that problem. I'm going to go with Mr. Spock like I do every year. And, and I think that that for the time being, I feel pretty safe about, uh, Miriam, what's your draft? Uh, I refuse Halloween. Let it be said. Um, that's not my draft. I just refuse no. Halloween. Um, but uh, but um, I don't make that choice on behalf of my child. So um, that's my contribution. My draft is um, a bit of a follow up to the episode that um, Jordan, Leticia and Sarah and I recorded in the spring. Um, and also a brief anecdote about how I am a loudmouth with who cannot um, filter myself appropriately. So um, in the spring, we recorded um, a segment about a um, psychology study that um, was fairly recent about um, c- trying to understand whether um, there's a measurable way that theater creates empathy in viewers. Um, and that psychology study had looked at a couple of different productions and it had um, used uh, viewers um, or rather audience members um desire to donate, make donations to charitable causes after watching um, a performance of specific individual plays as a way to find a measurable um, empathic uh, kind of response. And um, at the time, I uh, because I teach at a very small liberal arts college and I encounter colleagues from every field all of the time, I happen to be um, co-advising a joint undergraduate senior project in theater and psychology. Um, and so at a final meeting for this project with my student and my colleague from psychology, um, I happened to mouth off about this study. And I say, saying to my student, um, you know, why should theater people use, um, you know, quantitative methods from the sciences to um, to validate what we do anyway? Um, what place does does theater have in a psych study, and what place does psychological study have in um, in a theater project? And then I mentioned this study, and I mentioned that I had spoken about it at a podcast. And my um, extremely diligent and generous colleague in psychology went and found our podcast and listened to it, um, and emailed me <laughs> to say that she had quite enjoyed it um, and that she. Um, that that she felt like uh, you know psychologists like anybody else could used to be taken down a notch, and so she was she was really gracious about it. Um, but what it led to actually was a conversation about um, uh, how how one might go about that conversation between the two fields. And so um, I have been following up with her and with one of my other colleagues in psych a little bit because um, I'm I'm sort of interested in um, the way that. 
empathy is so often connected with um, with the telling of a story or the pinpointing of an individual character who's deserving of empathy. And in my um, current project that is about spectatorship, I'm thinking a lot about the relationship between the spectator and the encounter with abstraction and the political possibilities that abstraction holds. And so um, I am now in, a, in an interesting conversation with my colleagues in psychology um, who, uh, who have been super generous about this. So that's my draft. That sounds really interesting. Um, that's a that's a, a great narrative of, um, I don't know, something that appears on the podcast that ends up being a, a more sustained collaborative endeavor. Um, my my draft, uh, I don't know. It's a it's a story that I've been looking at. I'm sure listeners have may be aware of this, but at at Grinnell um, earlier this semester, there was a, a story about. Um, a situation where a faculty member, and this has all just been reported by the student news- newspaper, where a veteran faculty member as part of a play rehearsal allegedly slapped a student to demonstrate a stage slap and then was subsequently suspended from the production. Um, uh, obviously, it's a bad idea to slap a student and choreography of physical violence uh, really deserves professional attention. Um, but in looking at this, what has been more interesting to me uh, than the sort of original event um, is the way that the student reactions uh, uh, proceeded and and foremost the way that the student newspaper, which heard about the story and decided to run uh, a story about it, um, ended up in a standoff with the student union group at Grinnell, which basically wanted the newspaper to remove accounts that one of the student witnesses had given to the story. Um, So it ends up actually being, I think, a story much more about journalistic ethics uh, and and journalistic practice um, and and student mobilization and and organizing um, uh, on a college campus than it is about the 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 inciting event. Um, but I just wanted to to sort of flag that because it's been something that's you know uh, been reported on and and has a lot to do with our field. Well, Harvey, Miriam, thank you so much. Um, as always, it's a delight to, to talk to you on the podcast. Listeners, um, uh, we will put up links to the many um, items we discussed on the on the episode today on the website, and uh, we'll hope you'll, you'll tune in uh, again in a few weeks. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for ONTAP, and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast.